You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Here's what's coming up on this edition of Next Big Trade. Enjoy the show. China is a total utter mess, and I think it's not coming back. It's only going to get worse through time. They've made a political decision to change the operation of the economy, which has very serious consequences. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade. Thanks for joining us. This week, I'm talking to Jeff Snyder. Uh, Jeff is a chief strategist for Atlas Financial and a familiar voice for those of us who pay attention to money markets and monetary plumbing. A pleasure to meet you, Jeff. How's it going? It's great, Harry. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invitation. It's good to meet you too. You know, you're among you're a very small minority of people who think it's good to meet me, but we'll fix that. We'll, we'll fix that. Well, then I'm looking forward to doing that then too. <laughs> Added so, bonus. There you go. So I like to break the ice a little bit by asking people what they're what they're reading at the moment. What's what's caught their attention in markets or in news events or anything? What is catching your attention right now? Oh, boy, there's no shortage of attention, whether it's data, whether it's markets, whether it's plumbing issues. Oh, the, we live in interesting times, the, the old adage or the old curse, actually. May yes, you live yeah. in interesting times. There is no shortage of interesting stuff here. What's really grabbed my attention is kind of what most people know me for, which is the Eurodollar futures curve, which is just screaming bloody murder that something is really wrong in the system and that uh, it, it's going to be identified and not corrected. But whatever's, whatever's really uh, bothering the market so that it's hedging in this fashion is likely to happen sooner rather than later. So we have the, the confluence of, hey, there's something wrong and also, hey, there's something wrong sooner rather than later. So it's timing as well as uh, confidence that, you know, all this hedging hedging activity going on. I stare at euro dollars a lot, partly because I'm losing lots of money in them right now. I have a... <laughs> I, I've, yeah, I've, front I'm, end, yeah. Uh, yeah. It can keep you paying attention. But the curve has rates peaking at 360 or so in February 23, the February 23 meeting. I'm using the WERP function on Bloomberg to come to that conclusion. So is that what you mean, that you're seeing a peaking, you know, obviously that we're going to hike a fair amount to get to 360, but less than we had thought, had thought a few months ago. We had it up above 4% at one point, and then we drop. So is that what you mean, that they're already discounting rate cuts? Yeah, and it's, it's even worse than that because, all right, let's start with the Fed and the dot plots, right? Because that's what, I mean, let's base ourselves off of, what Jay Powell and FOMC thinks that they're going to be able to accomplish. And they have, the, you know, the various dot plots to get up to around 4% through next year as in into 2024. So according to the rate hikers themselves, they've got a lot of room to go and a lot of time to accomplish these rate hikes in order to get what they think is uh, inflation under control. And the market is saying, nah, you're not going to make it to 2024. To begin with, the curve is inverted at the December 23 contract, sometimes November, which doesn't trade enough. But what that says is that in terms of timing, uh, we don't take the curve literally. We don't take these contracts literally. It's all about probability distributions, which means the market is relatively certain that the Fed is going to stop its rate hikes long before 2024, probably before 2023, with a fair chance, I would say more than a majority chance, that they're not going to end this year hiking rates. And then it's a matter of what happens from there. And the market has been increasingly confident that they're, what's going to follow is not just a terminal rate hike, but also 
maybe fairly quickly, the Fed moving into reverse and going into rate cuts. And of course, we don't know how many that is. And again, the probability distribution further down the curve becomes much more uncertain, wider error bars when you're plotting this out in terms of probabilities. I mean, it could be another aggressive rate cutting program like uh, March of 2020, where we see quantitative easing, zero rates again at some point, or it could just be a modest thing. Uh, a minor amount of rate cutting. I would tend to believe it's more of the former rather than the latter. So the market is saying, in just general terms, we vehemently disagree with the dots. The rate hikes are going to end very likely this year, and they're very likely going to lead into the opposite direction relatively quickly thereafter. So the market is making a very bold statement here, but isn't just euro dollar futures, it's the treasury curve, which is obviously inverted tremendously over the last couple of weeks and other markets as well. The US dollar exchange value that continues to go higher and higher. And it's not just the euro. Everybody's focused on the euros. It, it closes on parity. It's against a broad range of currencies. Oh, so yeah. the US dollar going up is another bad sign of something going wrong in the monetary policy. You know, let's touch on that a little bit later because it segs perfectly into some notes, though, right? But let me ask you this. So Tell us about your what your next big trade is. What, what would you argue, what would you put on right here? Well, if we look at the euro dollar futures curve, we look at the treasury curve, we look at history, and then we sort of try to ask ourselves, okay, if the euro dollar futures curve in particular is right about the direction of interest rates and the timing of interest rates, what does that actually mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything good. I mean, what gets Jay Powell and the FOMC out of their most ultra-aggressive hawkish stance and does it this year? That's not something very good. That's something likely more than a recession, probably a deflationary event across the monetary market space, which means the next big trade would be something like going very long, uh, very aggressively long in duration in the treasury curve or long dated bonds. And be careful about other bonds because usually in these types of low liquidity environments, there's going to be a bifurcation probably among liquidity characteristics as well as quality. But by and large, you'll see the, the, the ra a rally in treasuries, a rally in, say, uh, safe assets like German bonds or uh, high-grade corporates or things like that. So the next big trade, if all of these things continue to play out as they have over the first half of this year, really going back to last year, when the euro dollar futures inversion first showed up last December, it's continued to move in the same direction more and more. The next big trade would be long duration, long okay. safe duration, I should say. Yeah, long, long the long the dollar long end, I guess is. It? Yeah, exactly. Have you already got that on? Have you, you're saying you should already be in that trade, or you should be here. It's it's tricky here because. There's a tug of war. There's a balance here, right? Because at the front of the curve, as you started out saying, the front of the curve is pricing the Fed. And the Fed is kind of a wild card here because the Fed is not really, in my opinion, they're not really basing their rate hikes and monetary policy on economic fundamentals so much as political pressure. And it's very difficult to predict, to game plan what what a political non-economic uh, set of factors, how that's going to uh, how that's going to develop over any period of time. So you wonder has the balance shifted? Have we moved more toward the long end view in the curve where maybe there's less risk of further rate hikes impacting the longer end than there were, say, a couple months ago, like in um, like in middle of May, when the Europeans voted to restrict their Russian energy in points that sent uh, oil prices even higher. And then yields across the world went up because the, the market was expecting that to translate into a more aggressive rate hike posture in the US and Europe and other places around the world. So that's always the danger here is the timing. If you want to go long duration, yet there's still the risk that maybe the Fed continues, can exert more influence and more rate hike pressure, forward guidance that affects the short end that then bleeds into a sell-off in the long end. But I think, so you need to be thinking about the long duration trade, but still be careful about the timing, given a lot of uncertainties and moving parts here. You know, it's interesting. I, I Among the people I speak to, I have a friend, Rob Duggar. When I talk to Rob Duggar about this, he splits it into two trades. You can have the short equity trade or you can have the long bond trade. Right. And right now, it's not like he doesn't manage money. He manages quite a lot of money. It's just all his own. 
he has got the short equity trade on when I when I talk to him about it. Whether whether he has that in reality is another matter. But what he tells me about is that he's he's trading short equities and he and he's pushing on the short equity trade. And at the moment, he doesn't want to to get long, even though he's got his longer term prognosis says that at some point he's going to pivot. And at some point, he's going to say, that's it, enough of short equities. Now we're long, long end bonds. He hasn't pulled that trigger yet. Um, so what is it that you're seeing that makes you think now is the time? Well, again, the, the, the fact that the rates have come way down from their peak in middle of June would suggest the market is starting to rebalance toward the deflationary lack of growth scenario. They would pay off in, the, in exactly, as he said, the, the short equity long bond trade. So it seems like, at least in the short run, the balance of, of the market is shifting toward the long-end version, which is you know, resistance to the short-end pressure from the Fed rate hikes at the long end, especially the 10-year Treasury. You have to wonder if the balance is shifting more favorably toward the long bond trade here. So I'm not the only one to note this, but a market that trades counterintuitively is one that always catches my eye. Do you see any stress in dollar money markets at the moment or dollar markets in general? Yeah, they're all over the place, just starting with the curves. I mean, the Treasury curve has moved upside down relatively quickly, which is never a good sign. You know, now we're inverted all the way to the 12 month bill. So the 10 years below the 12 month bill by about 30 some basis points. That's a pretty big, big warning sign. And it's almost inverted to the six month bill. So you see the inversion on the Treasury curve rolling further and further and further closer to the front to the point that we're going to get some of these front end rates that are now going to be inverted, which is going to make the very it's going to make it impossible for the Federal Reserve and the mainstream media to ignore it any longer. Again, the Eurodollar futures curve, which is not just trading on simple, you know, yes, okay, I think we got a recession coming or macro data, global recession possibilities. There's also deflationary pressures all throughout the monetary system that have turned the Eurodollar futures curve just grotesquely upside down. We haven't seen inversion like this since September of 2007. So after the global financial crisis had already started in only weeks before the first Fed panic rate cut. And then you think about and look at what are some of the deep monetary mechanics that could be that could be so worrying traders that they're willing to go this far in, in the euro dollar uh, futures market. There's any number of collateral shortages indications where from treasury bill prices to repo fails, the activity at the Federal Reserve securities lending window, which suggests a massive shortfall of collateral, which is hugely risky, hugely deflationary if it turns into a full on collateral run. Um, just to give you an indication, the last two weeks in June, which were chaotic across markets, which we, we'd probably characterize them as lack of liquidity or illiquid. The repo fails in the last two weeks in June were as high as they were in March of 2020. So really chaotic conditions, really bad conditions in markets. And then you see these fundamental prices and curves, which suggest, yeah, there's really something going on here already and maybe the potential for more than that moving, moving ahead. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. So I would, I've got a crude way of looking at this, although to be fair, I got a, a lot of friends would say I got a crude way of looking at everything, but um, my crude, crude is sometimes uh, good. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's, it could survive a stress test. And, and that's the thing. Back of the envelope calculation would suggest that maybe we've lost something like 20 to $30 trillion. Um, that's not a flesh wound, right? A dollar balance sheet might be $140 trillion. Um, Back in 2008, which was a, a formative experience for many of us, back in 2008, there was a big mismatch between assets and liabilities in the global dollar balance sheet. And we were missing maybe $6 trillion of assets relative to liabilities. And it caused a lot of trouble. A lot of that trouble was partly because the Fed had never seen that problem in recent memory. So they didn't react very promptly. But here... The losses are something like twenty trillion dollars on the low end estimate. If you have losses like that, you will have some. You would expect to see collateral shortages, even if a big block of those losses are in things like crypto, where it's not so easy to to borrow against your crypto. 
and lenders have been a little sceptical. But even, you know, we've got enough losses out there that the collateral squeeze bothers me because like, it might be quite profound. Maybe we should touch on why collateral matters. Why should people who don't really understand the plumbing of fixed income worry about collateral squeezes? Well, collateral is the lifeblood of the system. It is essentially the backbone of the entire financial system globally. Uh, the euro-dollar system is the global reserve currency, and it depends upon collateral. It always has to a certain extent, but that became even more of an issue or even more of a factor in the wake of the 2007-2008 crisis where unsecured lending essentially disappeared. And practically everything that goes on in the interbank system is collateralized in some way or another. And really the problem is how it is collateralized. There just aren't enough government and safe, safe liquid assets to go around. And so it requires these dealer banks inside the system to reuse, repledge, even occasionally rehypothecate good assets in order to distribute the, uh, the limited number of safe assets that are available far uh, widely enough and, and reasonably enough that it continues to grease the wheels of the monetary system, therefore the markets and as well as the real economy. But there are times when First of all, bad collateral gets into the system. That was really the issue with subprime mortgages, not the mortgages themselves, but they were used as collateral in these repo markets and some derivative markets too. When you know, eventually the market said, this is really junk collateral. I don't want to take it anymore. It just removes that, that, that level of collateral from the system, forcing an even greater scramble for the few assets that are available. And we've seen that repeatedly since 2015, no longer subprime mortgages, but in certain cases like 2015, for example, you had all sorts of leveraged loans and junk bonds related to the oil exploration in the United States and shale that when oil prices started to crash, suddenly that collateral got reevaluated. It became bad. There was a collateral squeeze. Everybody needed to get treasuries. And it just repeats time and time again. Uh, March in 2020 is another example. And I think we've seen it again this year. Credit spreads are rising in a lot of risky markets, particularly euro bonds, particularly some emerging markets where credit spreads are higher than they've been outside of 2020 since 2008. So there's indications of stress in lower quality credits, which impacts the valuations, the haircuts, the usability rate of lower quality collateral, which means everybody gets squeezed and herded into the best quality stuff. And as that best quality stuff becomes shorter and harder to get, goes to higher higher prices, it causes these knock-on effects, which drains liquidity from the real economy as well as these markets. So that's why I correlate you know, credit spreads with something like repo fails that tells us, first of all, collateral being so important, and then therefore treasuries, the best of the best collateral being in short supply, it all comes back to something deflationary in the monetary environment. And as you said, Harry, you know, there's losses. There's there's a lot of concern about what is money good assets here. What are what are going to be dependably liquid and predictable assets as we go forward into maybe a recession or even a nasty recession? There's going to be a lot of shocks here. Yeah, shockingly, Jeff, some people are even questioning the quality of my um, Argentinian distress debt portfolio. <laughs> uh, well, they're just too early. That's uh, that's the only problem. You got to wait another year, and then it's going to be it's a, it'll be a gold mine. Perhaps, yeah, as Harley Bassman says, no bad assets only bad prices and i seem to have found a bad price but um so the other thing i noticed there's been a discussion about m2 growth slowing and i, I looked at that discussion and thought that isn't isn't a well brief discussion because i, I don't know what, what did you make of the uh, slowdown in m2 growth uh m2 doesn't matter to me at all m1 or m2 because those have been obsolete measures for decades um, they don't capture anything but depository money and domestic depository money. And as we've been talking about, we're talking about a global euro dollar or shadow money system that has created all sorts of forms of money that don't get counted in either M1 or M2. In a lot of cases, what you see is M1 will change or M2 will change, and it bears no correlation on anything because, uh, for example, a famous case in 2008, so September, October 2008, M2 rose rather sharply even though it was the worst financial global financial crisis in four generations because there was a lot of shadow money that nobody saw being destroyed. And in some places, it forced some of the banks like Citigroup to trigger their liquidity backstop. So essentially, you had a switch from shadow money being destroyed to visible depository money like M2 being created. 
So M2 to me doesn't really mean much because it doesn't encompass enough of the monetary system to be meaningful, which is why, for example, you saw M2 skyrocket in 2020, yet consumer prices didn't really get out of control until over a year later because it wasn't M2 that caused consumer prices to accelerate with something else entirely. Well, exactly so. It's a compositional effect. It, it, if you only look at one bucket, you don't see the others what, that might be moving. So I looked at the M2 growth slowing, and I noticed that that's happening. I'd seen people reporting that the bigger banks had been desperately trying to shed commercial deposits. And that kind of makes sense to me because of the way SLR, uh, a banking supervision metric, which is supplementary leverage ratio, this is banking supervision is so abstruse. Nobody understands it. The few people who do understand it are not economists. And so most of the problems in the world are caused by banking supervisors and economists not talking. Um, and I, I suspect that's true even now. But with those banking supervisory rules, there is no incentive for big banks to, to, to take deposits from some of their larger endowment clients or pension fund clients. These deposits cost them the capacity to do business. So they've been shedding them into money market funds, which is probably putting extra stress on collateral as well because of how money market funds operate. And then in addition, you've seen C&I lending picking up, which you know, always makes me nervous because this doesn't look like a good time to expand business, right? So why would CNI lending be picking up? Probably for the same reason it picked up just ahead of COVID when every corporate treasurer had a look and went, oh my God, we need cash, yeah. as much cash as possible. Draw those facilities Draw down now. every line you can find, right? Right. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, oh dear, all of the liquidity, available liquidity is being drawn down suddenly. That's a bad sign, not a good sign. Yeah. Not a good sign. And it's funny, you know, you mentioned the the SLR, the su supplementary leverage ratio, and all the GSEB uh, surcharges that have been added through Basel Three, and they have definitely hampered balance sheet construction and balance sheet efficiency. And as you mentioned, it, it, a lot of times it causes all of these because banks have the ability to manage their liabilities in the ways it's even they, even now in, in certain ways that uh, certainly benefit them, or at least the, 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 the intentions of how they're trying to manage their affairs. I mean, you always have an asset versus a liability. You have the ability to manipulate, uh, manipulate is probably not the right word, but manage and massage adjust, the liability side adjust. because there's always, <laughs> there's always, there's always choices to be made. You know, that's maybe the good thing that economists bring to the table is that they're always talking about trade-offs and there are trade-offs. However, but you know, uh, an individual bank or a group of individual banks that make that kind of determination, they're making trade-offs on individual considerations that may be systemically harmful down the road. So they may be depriving the system of liquidity when they're doing what they think is the right thing for themselves based on these numbers, these metrics. Which, you know, to me, the biggest issue with banks isn't necessarily the, the regulations like the SLR, which have made balance sheets more expensive. It's the fact that they don't see the opportunities that justify taking risks in order to create opportunities and rewards that would reward them enough for these capital constraints and everything else. That Where's the risk-taking behavior? And it's continuously absent. People are talking about stress tests now, and I didn't think the banks were the epicenter of risk-taking in this particular cycle. So what is harming banks' capacity to leverage their balance sheets now? What's the constraint? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of eye-opening the fact that JP Morgan has made some negative comments about how much they want to buy back their shares because – as you, as you said, that's kind of their thing. That's that's the way bankers make money nowadays. They don't make it on balance sheet expansion because they're not risk takers. They make it through the equity market transfer of profits to uh, share repurchases. So if they're kind of concerned about their share repurchasing program, there can only really be two reasons. One of them, one of which we've kind of already hinted at and gone through, which is some kind of regulatory uh, framework that is causing them to say, okay. Maybe next year the SLR will be even costlier because there'll be an additional surcharge. We're going to move up a bucket or two, maybe two. That's going to mean that we have to hold more capital, which means we can't give it back to shareholders as dividends or share repurchases. So there could be a regulatory worry there or there could be a market or systemic worry where they're saying – you know, maybe earnings itself, maybe liquidity itself is not going to be as good. And therefore, we need to conserve 
capital and resources and cash resources in order to weather a possible storm. Given the way the markets are positioned, I would tend to think it's the latter, but you can never discount the former either because you don't really know. I mean, the, the publicly available bank statements that we get from the SEC and whatnot, those are not really good representations of how these banks run their, their affairs. And so you never really know what they're doing, which means that, you know, it could the actual balance sheet could be very different in what they report to the government. And it also could be very different in terms of how it's positioned to handle potential market disruptions and, and volatility, let's call it that. You know, in the absence of more information, I should be clear, I'm not dissing JP Morgan. I'm thinking that JP Morgan's probably an example of where how everyone set, set up. And my guess would be that the problem is just US treasuries and US treasury near proxies. The, the sell-off in those bonds has damaged the balance sheet because it's just been so big. So if that's true, another couple of really hostile inflation prints could harm banks' ability to you know, maintain the current balance sheet, which, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's a system. Like in 2008, banks were the epicenter of the problem. They, they basically blew up. And a whole bunch of banks were effectively bankrupt and were rescued by the Fed. This time around, I doubt they're the epicenter of the problem. But whatever the problem is, it isn't going to be helped by banks being liquidity or balance sheet constrained. So that kind of made me quite gloomy. Um, maybe That's I'll the, I mean, JP Morgan sort of invented that, right? They called it their fortress balance sheet from, from I think, 2009 forward. That was sort of a, a intentional, purposeful marketing slogan, which was, you're not going to have to worry about J.P. Morgan. And you're right. A lot of the bank's balance sheets have been changed over the years, long before these regulations were implemented, where they became fortresses. So if we do have a liquidity event, which I think there's a high risk of going through, um, we're not going to see another Lehman Brothers. We're not going to see another Bear Stearns or AIG because banks as on individual cases are fine. However, liquidity requires banks to expand, to take, to take on risk, which they don't do. So if we get into a bad situation like March 2020, there's no dealers behind there's no dealers behind the monetary system in order to continue to enforce elasticity throughout. So even though we don't have another Lehman Brothers, you still have those liquidity risks system-wide. And it, it ends up becoming somewhat of a different story in how it plays out. We don't, you know, we don't need to see another Lehman Brothers, but we do have markets that end up becoming disorderly, which I think we've already seen. And I think what J.P. Morgan in particular might be concerned about isn't so much the sell-off in treasuries as it is the consequences of all the other assets and funding those assets because we don't really know how they're funded. Um, the Fortress balance sheet implies that, oh, we screwed up before the crisis. We're no longer relying on wholesale short-term money relationships. We're now more of a depository than we've ever been. But at the margins... And in some of these balance sheets that, and some of the balance sheet statements that we do get, you can see there, there's still some of the vestiges of the old way of doing business, particularly with derivatives, particularly with currency swaps, how those get funded, how there's sometimes there are synthetic repos, sponsored repo, things that get hidden off the balance sheet into the footnotes. There's a lot that goes on that we don't really, we're not really privy to that uh, JP Morgan's management, and not just, you're right, we're not just picking on JP Morgan, it's the entire banking, the banking, the investment banking business that's still there that is still doing things in somewhat the same way that they used to do things before the crisis that causes eventually collateral needs. And if some of those things start to go in the wrong direction, the dollar screaming in value, that's creating a lot of heartache. That's creating a lot of problems on, in counterparties throughout the global system. It's going to require collateral calls, all these other things. So, I mean, there's enough things there that we could say they're worried enough about it that they're not even going to they're, they're going to consider changing the way they buy back their shares. That's a, as you pointed out, Harry, that's that's a truly significant uh, development that uh, it kind of makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand up a little bit. Like, what are they thinking here? Yeah. How about QT? Does that make everything a little bit worse? I don't think so. QT, bank reserves to me, they don't matter much at all. It's more of a, it's a tool that we can use to see what the Fed is doing. Uh, the level of bank reserves beyond a certain threshold, it's just, 
you know, it's just more bank reserves. And bank reserves are certainly not money. They're not usable in any real economic sense. And the only matter is if uh, if commercial banks feel like, okay, I've got a lot of liquid assets on my balance sheet. I can do some riskier stuff because I, ha- I have plenty of liquid assets, which, as we just said, that's not that's it's been the opposite problem in the banking system for now 15 years. Banks are unwilling to expand their balance sheets regardless of the level of reserves. And reserves don't correlate with the real economy or the real monetary system anyway and haven't for 50 years. So QT is really more to me, it's more about the Fed playing its political role, which is to say to the public, by and large, hey, we hear you about these CPIs. We see they're incredibly high. We're doing something about it. Don't worry about what it is we're doing. Just be happy. We're we're on the case. We're doing some we're hiking rates as aggressively as that we ever have, and we're taking assets off the balance sheet and running down bank reserves. So it, it plays well, or at least it's intended to play well in a political public sort of way. So I, I have colleagues, and to some degree, I think I, I kind of disagree with you here, and I hate to push back against uh, anybody. Oh, please do. Yeah, you, you say please do, but I, you know, what can I say? I, I get labeled, I, I won't tell the world what I get labeled too often, but. Um, <laughs> But it's not the reserves. I agree with you. Bank reserves are meaningless until they're not, right? Usually, and there's excess reserves in this system all over the place. It's collateral that we're short of, not reserves. But the other side of it is there isn't that much balance sheet. The big expansion in balance sheet that took place when COVID hit was the Fed's balance sheet. The Fed's balance sheet expanded dramatically, and that resulted in the world being stuffed full of bank reserves because the Fed took the, took those assets on their sheet. When they reverse that process, they're going to remove the reserves, which won't really matter, but those assets will suddenly be floating in private markets again. And as those assets float in private markets are subject to private price, price uh, discovery, and at the moment, people aren't enthusiastically swallowing up all of that fixed income and all those mortgage bonds. I worry, and primarily, the bigger worry is to things like inflation-linked debt, where the Fed owned a a particularly large proportion of it, but also mortgage-backed securities. I don't even think these things are really coming out. I think they just roll off the they just let most of But there'll be some proportion of that stuff that comes out. And then I wonder, whose balance sheet is that going to sit on? It was like before. We heard the same argument uh, just a couple of years ago. There are too many treasuries. The federal government is borrowing too much. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act of December 2017 triggered all sorts of cries that, oh, my God, there's too many treasuries. How will the the system be able to absorb all of this issuance? And then what happened? The treasury market never blew up because the system found a way. Whose balance sheet did they go on? Well, through the basis trade, the, the, the imbalances in the futures market, hedge funds bought them. There is a balance sheet there. And I think that discussion has been entirely misplaced, too, because we should be asking ourselves the same question we're asking about why banks are not expanding their balance sheets. Why are hedge funds so interested in picking up nickels in a basis trade with safe and liquid assets only? Shouldn't hedge funds be doing other things that are risky, expanding the balance sheets for other activities that are less than or that are greater, greater economic contributions than trading in U.S. Treasury debt? There's something meaningful in the fact that hedge funds bought a hell of a lot of what Treasury had issued in 2018 and 2019 and are already doing so again in 2022 as the Federal Reserve steps back on quantitative easing. So there is balance sheet capacity there. That's not the issue. In my mind, Is the issue is why are hedge funds only picking up you know, small premiums in basis trades for safe and liquid assets? They're telling you something about the safety and liquidity environment that eventually, bringing this back to the point of our discussion, leads you to the big trade, which is once once this dynamic plays out, once everybody becomes more aware and cognizant of the deflationary risks that are embedded in collateral shortages, plus uh, this, this growing recessionary fear that may already be recession reality, suddenly it makes sense why you know, there's going to be buyers for treasuries all over the place, all over the curve. Yeah, I, I can. Well, you know, we have pension funds that have just, just when equities peaked, that was the maximum point of solvency because equities were strong and yields were pretty high. You know, we, we had this big sell off. That peak in pension fund solvency, my suspicion is it's ebbing away now because equities are selling off. You'd think that. 
matching assets to liabilities would create an enormous potential bid for the long end of the curve at these levels. We'll see, because, you know, the other side of the coin is inflation, although pension trustees don't necessarily have to worry about inflation eating away the real value of the assets. It's not necessarily their problem. I can see why there should be a really big bid at the back of the curve if, you know, if things look stable enough. Um, Look at inflation expectations in the tips market. And I know you already referenced the fact that the Fed was big buyers, especially at the five-year tips. That's something that Harley Bassman always talks about, too, is that, oh, you can't trust the tips. uh, That's all the Fed. Well, inflation expectations have been, you know, performed relatively consistent with something like oil prices, for example, as you would expect, because oil is a key component in the CPI. As we know, CPI is how tips determine their inflation protection. But up until April, uh, you know, tips and inflation break-evens were relatively in lockstep, as you'd expect. But since then, inflation expectation, or at least inflation break-evens in the tips market have been have been falling precipitously, even as up until recently, oil prices had remained over $100 a barrel. So again, we have the market sort of looking ahead at inflation expectations. And tips have been upside down to begin with anyway, ever since January 2021, which is the market saying, we expect inflation to be lower over time or consumer prices to accelerate slower over time anyway. And it may be we're just seeing that the market come to grips with the fact that this was indeed nothing more than a transitory supply shock. And now we're seeing the downside. Or we're seeing it in the marketplace, commodities as well, or if it, even if it isn't showing up in CPIs and PPIs just yet. Hey, it could be both a transitory supply and demand shock. It's possible. But, uh, you know, I looked at the, the break-even. So... Uh, I take your point on break-evens. They've definitely been coming down. They're trending lower across the board. The one thing, uh, at the long end of the curve, it's hard to argue with that. I've got different views, but we'll, we'll never find. But on two-year break-evens, I just don't buy two years. The CPI is currently 9%, and the break-evens are going to be sub-3%. In fact, I, I could have sworn last time I checked it, those two-year break-evens are even 2%. That's just nonsense. Think about the forward implied fall in, in inflation. I No way yeah. am I buying that. That's so scary, right? <laughs> that number just doesn't make strike me as intuitive. I think you if you buy those break-evens, you're going to carry very positively because there's no way inflation will drop that fast. Going out five years, yeah, maybe. I can, you know, I've been wrong about bigger things. I think that's what the curves are saying is that we're in for a potential shock here where consumer prices do not necessarily decline back to where they were before all this, but they certainly stop increasing. And maybe some of them actually do decline. We do see a little bit of outright deflation that over the next two year averages out to something considerably less than 8%. Uh, but it has to, to to make those to validate those break evens. We have to be about three uh, percent. So I, that's the problem I've got. It's total cognitive dissonance, and I don't generally get that much. Uh, you can usually reverse engineer what the market's thinking, but in, in the case of two year break evens, I can't reverse engineer it. I, I just can't <laughs> figure out what could possibly make that work because uh, you need to see an absolute collapse in inflation in the next three or four months, and it's it, a really fast one. Um, so uh, yeah, that's a th- I think that's what the market is saying. When you again, you see the euro dollar futures inversion as bad as it's been since September of 2007. I think the market is telling you there is a good likelihood that over the next half year or so, if not a little bit longer, we are going to see consumer prices come down or consumer price growth come down relatively quickly. Otherwise, I mean, how else are we going to get Jay Powell out of those rate hikes? That's the that's the first place that has to happen. He's going to continue hiking rates, recession or not, as long as the CPIs stay high. So the market is discounting the fact that CPIs are going to hit their highs. And then when they do come down, they're probably going to come down dramatically. And again, you see that in commodity markets. You know, aluminum, for example, that was an impenetrable supply favored uh, con- uh, uh, commodity that has crashed over the last several months. It's as low as it's been in over a year. Copper prices, Dr. Copper is telling you something's not right in the system. And as these commodity prices come down, that lower those lower prices are going to filter through producer prices and consumer prices, too. And then you add to that lack of demand, recession, things like that. I, I It's not hard for me to envision a scenario where consumer prices do normalize relatively quickly. So just to address that briefly, but you you, you made me think of something else as well. So uh, sometimes 
uh, when you see big, fast moves in commodities, it's because some hedge fund somewhere got over its skis. Um, <laughs> it, it would not shock me if some of these commodity price moves reflect people unwinding books quicker than they would normally like in less friendly markets. But we'll find out in a few months, right? You never find out on the day. You find out three months later that hedge fund A, B or C decided to unwind its commodity book. Uh, the, the bigger issue I wanted to come back to you on was this question of what it is that's going to change Jay Powell's mind. Now, I'm going to ask you a completely unforgivable question. Luckily, it's not to do with fashion. But <laughs> I'm, going to ask you this, yeah, I'm going to ask you this completely <laughs> unforgivable question because no one could possibly get this right. But the Fed is tightening financial conditions. And usually when the Fed tightens financial conditions, you don't get this soft landing where inflation just gently ebbs back into target and everything's happy ever after. Somebody somewhere breaks. Some market somewhere gets a bullet in the back of the head. Which market is it going to be? I'm looking at EM. EM's like dying out there. My poor, poor Argentinian bonds. Private equity. There's all sorts of terrible things I'm hearing from the private equity guys. Lack of liquidity is deadly there, yeah. Uh, then there's public equity markets, leverage loans, another private market. There's, you know, yeah. That one stopped dead on every bank that was issuing leveraged loans is now regretting the pipeline they had because they can't shift it. What do you think? Or they can't, they can't fund it either. That's, that's the thing, right. collateral shortages. That's where it comes from. Absolutely. Who would take that collateral for God's sake? What's it worth? So nobody in the right mind. <laughs> Not even what it's worth. Can I sell it tomorrow? If you know, that's it's just more immediate. That's the thing. That's the thing. I've traded emerging market bonds, and you don't really want to be forced to sell in an emerging market <laughs> catastrophe because you nobody's going to do you any favors, right? Yeah. In fact, that's one of the reasons why people didn't necessarily mourn Lehman so badly. I watched exactly what Lehman's did in 1998. You know, there's a certain amount of irony about what happened to them yeah. because that's what they inflicted on other people at the time. Um, it's, it's everybody's turn at some point. Right. But uh, what do you think will be where what's going to break, Jeff? What's going to break? Yeah, that is a hard question because it's it's kind of impossible to tell. Um, and it could be multiple things, but I would be most concerned about the lower quality fixed income stuff, because once they become illiquid, then they become non-negotiable. And in a low liquidity environment, you're not just talking about people who, who don't who don't want to sell, but they kind of have to sell. We're talking fire sales. You have deleveraging that's forced upon the system at almost any price that anybody can get. And then it's where it really, really becomes a bloodbath and low liquidity becomes the primary factor. You can't, get, you can't get repo funding. You can't get derivatives funding. It just becomes a total nightmare. So lower quality fixed income credit, euro bonds, uh, euro, your emerging market, other high yield, yeah. bonds, high yield stuff, leverage loans. You already mentioned that one, syndicated loans. Things like that where the markets drop for them dry up really fast as soon as dealers decide, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. And those were, you know, especially since the prices of them had gotten so extreme last year in particular, there's room for them to fall. Uh, there's room for them to fall even further. There's room for spreads to go much higher. That's really where I think things really get bad. And I think that has a knock-on effect even in money good assets where – you know, liquidity, you know, like we saw in 2007, 2008, it wasn't really about subprime mortgages, but because subprime mortgage collateral got revalued, suddenly everybody was looking funny at prime mortgages. Even really good money assets were, eh, we don't, maybe we don't want those either. There's that contagion, uh, contagion risk that goes beyond, you know, just leverage loans or emerging market debt that get, it spills over into other places. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So, what about China? Have you, are you worried about the impact that the things that are happening in China may have on global markets here? Yeah, and I think China's the primary source of our dollar issues. And I don't mean sources they're causing it, but the primary source of our way to actually see how it's working out. 
Uh, you mentioned hedge funds that are being forced to sell copper and liquidate, you know, certain commodities. I think potentially, they're uh, potentially, funds. I'm speculating, right? <laughs> they're Chinese government entities, I think, that are doing it. Yeah. Uh, we probably find out that they at least, you know, they have some connection to that uh, down the road. Mm. Yeah, China's yeah, yeah. a mess. China's a total utter mess, and I think it's 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 not coming back. It's not get. It's it's only going to get worse through time. I think Chinese authorities know that. And to be a little bit controversial here, I think that's really the point of their zero COVID pursuit, not really about the coronavirus, as it is sort of reminding gently the citizenry in China that Xi Jinping is in charge. And don't you dare be unhappy with your local bank, for example. Oh, I don't want you see. I don't want you running to the local bank and taking currency out because I'll lock your city down. I think there's there's more going on in China beyond just the usual. Hey, this is sort of a slowdown kind of a thing here. I think China is transitioning to a much much lower growth paradigm, uh, and they're all they're having all sorts of financial problems as well. If I was Xi, and you know, recently there've been reports of bank failures. Uh, coming yeah. out of China, I don't know how to handicap those or how how to assess how big they are. But there's I, no way I, to confirm it, right? It's right. just it's there's stories and anecdotes. But the property market situation it has all the hallmarks of something which is probably, if you were just asking me my opinion, bigger than the global financial crisis property uh, disaster that happened to the United States. It's been running for longer. It's been funded for longer, and it was an objective of Chinese government policy to to support it. So the odds are, if you're talking about misallocation of capital, that one's going to be even bigger than the one you had in the United States. Uh, malinvestment, I should say. Um, so in those circumstances, uh, maybe you're right. Maybe the best thing you can do is lock down the cities where people... Because if it was me and my bank failed, I'd be in a fantastically bad mood. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I, I'm not a, a natural risk taker in terms of physical risk. I, uh, I'm a big fan of Brave Sir Robin, who ran away. In the, right? <laughs> Love um, that movie. <laughs> right. uh, but if it, but that, that changes when my bank goes down, believe yeah. me. So, yeah. And uh, I think, well, I mean, this is not just, we're not just talking about economics or even finance anymore here. There's a political change going on in China where ever since the 19th Party Congress five years ago, and we're about to have the 20th Party Congress in the upcoming months, the Chinese have said we're no longer going to operate the economy and the society the way we had before. We're not prioritizing growth at all costs anymore. And so that conscious effort has become Evergrande. It has become the knock-on effects of the real estate uh, market where the government is saying we're no longer going to stand behind real estate property because we're not prioritizing growth. They've made a political decision to change the operation of the economy, which has very serious consequences. And I think we're seeing those serious consequences play out in really awful growth potential as well as actual growth numbers. And the fact that the Chinese are not going to do anything about it. I think there's still this, this Western-focused uh, uh, idea that they're going to go back into the Keynesian playbook any day now. There's going to be this massive, huge stimulus. There's going to be the PBOC entering the market and doing all sorts of helpful things, or at least what we assume to be helpful things. And the Chinese have said over and over and over again, no sharp turns, which means this is the way it's going to be. The political consideration behind common prosperity is going to be Xi's overriding economic policy, which means if the real estate market starts to go bad, then the real estate market starts to go bad. We're not going to bail it out. Yeah, they, I can imagine uh, my conception of this, which is going to be deeply flawed, right? Because I know guys who are experts on China. I am not an expert on China. Uh, but my conception of this is that they're looking to help the average Chinese person. They're not looking to help uh, real estate investors, bondholders in real estate investment companies, uh, or even- Or even uh, large companies anymore. It's, it's yeah. really focused on common people. That's what common prosperity really means. Exactly. Is redistributing from those who did well between 1992 and 2008 or 2010 and giving it back to the people, whether they like it or not. And so financial companies that have felt privileged and even explicitly backed by the government are suddenly finding themselves out there alone, exposed, 
uh, exposed not just from a hostile market, but even in some extent a hostile uh, central government, which is a total game changer there. Yeah, I'm thinking that recoveries, uh, if you're buying distressed Chinese real estate debt, I'm thinking recoveries are going to shock you by how low they are. Um, yeah. the, the, this is not going to work out like a distressed debt play. In or the here, maybe maybe it's a, a prolonged sell-off too. It's not something that just you know values uh, fall. There's an equilibrium, and we go kind of we kind of manage from a, 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 small, a lower equilibrium. It might just be that this is a prolonged squeeze that goes on for quite some time. As you said, the property market in real estate in China has been propped up for so long. We won't even we I mean how would anybody there even know what usable value actually is? It may take a long time to figure yeah, out what that is. Exactly. I'm t- I'm so old. I remember the Japanese real estate bust. Yeah. Uh, that one took an awful long time to unwind. They still haven't unwound it. <laughs> Thirty years later. Exactly. So you know, let me just follow up with some before we spend too long chatting. But we got an investment thesis. It's always worthwhile asking how you'd know when you're wrong. So you want to buy, say, the long end of the curve. And, you, you know, it's just a general thesis about collapsing risk assets at this point and, and de- you know, slubbing momentum in global global economies. But what would tell you you got that wrong? When would you cut the trade or look to reverse the trade? Well, you would know when the curves start to straighten out again. So when you see more balance, more shift toward, you know, the front end of the curve rather than the back end of the curve. And then it sticks around because, you know, market fluctuations are always short run. You can never really be sure. So if you see the curve steepen, uh, long rates really start to rise again, more balanced compared to the short end is. And that makes sense in given economic fundamentals. And then it kind of sticks around that way for a couple months. Um, Then you would know that something serious had changed. So it really curve steepening from this point out, you know, behavior like we saw in the early part of 2021 last year after the pandemic, uh, the election. Then we had, you know, the, the helicopter drop. We had vaccines. We had all these positive things, at least apparently positive things happening. You saw the yield curve where the back end rates rose faster than short end rates did. It's lots of steepening, which was indicating the market accepting a much more optimistic scenario at that point. So. If we get the, cur- the curve steepening out, rates rising at the long end, and it sticks around for a little bit of a while, a little while, that would be a pretty good indication. Uh, Jeff, we should probably wind it up this time around. We should do it again sometime, obviously. But if people wanted to find more of your work and keep in touch with what, with what you're, you're working on, where would they look? You can find me at Eurodollar University. Both the website and a podcast. Our website is eurodollar.university. It has everything I'm doing there. And the podcast I do with my co-host, Emil Kalinowski, which Real Vision fans, they, they know Emil. We have, it's on YouTube, his, his YouTube channel. It's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everything else. And I, you know, I write uh, a column at Real Clear Markets. I write a column at Epic Times. Uh, I have a research product that I'm launching. You can find that at, at marketsinsiderpro.com, which is in partnership with Mr. Steve Van Meter. So you can find me in pretty much anywhere. Fantastic. Jeff, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. My pleasure, Harry. Thanks for, thanks for having me. All right. That's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.